Robert F. Kennedy, Jr. Thank you, everybody. I want to thank all of you stalwarts for coming here, and I want to thank particularly Ron Paul for hosting you, for keeping the flame alive, for his lifelong commitment to civil rights, to the Bill of Rights, to the Constitution. And there are many, many areas of differences in our political opinions over the past 40 years that both of us have been in politics, but both of us share that reverence for the Bill of Rights that I think ultimately is the retreat fortress where all of us are holding up today. Excuse my voice, which usually my voice gets better as I talk. So I want to talk about the thing that we have in common, which is the erosion of the Constitution. And we've seen one of the alarming parts of this pandemic for those of us we're a little conversant with the kind of medical paradigms that are being invoked right now to understand with such clarity the manipulations that are taking place, the chicanery, the hiding of real data, the obscuring of all of these, you know, of, of true facts and figures that we could use to make rational policy decisions. How the case fatality rates relate to the seasonal flu for each age group. Who is dying at what age? Who is not? You know, what are the real death counts from COVID? CDC has admitted that 96% of the people, only 4% of the people who, are, who it classifies as having died from COVID died from only COVID. At the average number of potentially fatal comorbidities in the remaining 96% is 3.8. The people who died, 96% of them had, had almost four other reasons that might have killed them. You know, the manipulation of the death certificates, the manipulation of the PCR tests, all of these manipulations that are all designed, the Gates-funded projection that from, you know, the London and from IMH in Washington, which they used to manipulate the lockdowns, which we now see were 40 times the death rate that actually was imposed by COVID. So all of these mechanisms appear to have been deliberately manipulated to put our population in a state of fear. And what happens when you have a population in fear? You have the complete obliteration of critical thinking. And then and people stop asking questions, and it is a biological impulse. We retreat to, our, to the hardwired impulses that were hardwired into us during the 20,000 generations that the human race was wandering the African savanna in small tribal groups at war, embattled, besieged all the time. And the only way to survive was to follow a strong male leader, to embrace a common orthodoxy that would provide unit cohesion, and then to practice blind obedience to the leader. And that's where we all go in times of fear, unless we have something else that says to us, I'm going to question this. I'm going to start questioning these things. And when you start doing that with the orthodoxies, the, now the official orthodoxies, the whole thing falls apart. But we've all seen this kind of bewildering imposition 
of totalitarian controls in our society, which have, we've never, and attacks on the United States Constitution that are unprecedented in American history. Remember during the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln tried to abandon habeas corpus, just one provision of the United States Constitution. The court said, you can't do that. There is no emergency exemption in the United States Constitution. And there's certainly no pandemic exemption. And it's not that our framers did not know about pandemics. It was a pandemic during the Revolutionary War that brought the army of smallpox, that brought the armies of New England to a standstill for three months. And they all knew about it. And it was another pandemic during the American Revolution of malaria. And Washington, ironically, used the bark of the chinchoa tree, which is the modern analog of hydroxychloroquine, to end that pandemic. And so they knew about what pandemics were, but they didn't put in the United States Constitution that all of these rights will be suspended as soon as we have a pandemic. And here, you know, James Madison said, the reason we put the First Amendment, the right to you know, free speech in the First Amendment, is because all of the other civil rights and human rights and constitutional rights are based upon it. If a government can hide what it's doing by censoring its opponents and silencing dissidents, it has license to do anything that it wants. So they got rid, you know, they conspired with the social media and the media. We now know, we now have the emails that show Fauci corresponding with Zuckerberg telling him what to shut down and what not to shut down. And they shut down the critics, and once they did that, once they imposed censorship, and they closed debate off on the public square, they were able to go after all the other amendments, so they went after religious freedoms. They closed the churches in this country, every church in this country, for a year, and they kept the liquor stores open as essential businesses. There's no, there's no protection of liquor stores in the United States Constitution. There is protection of churches. They abolished religious exemptions. They got rid of jury trials. One of the first things that they did, the, the Seventh Amendment right to jury trials, Seventh Amendment says, under no conditions will Americans be denied their right to a trial by their peers in matters exceeding $25 in value. And yet they gave anybody who claims, any corporation that claims to be implementing a countermeasure is now immune from lawsuits. So a vaccine maker, remdesivir maker, no matter how negligent that company is, no matter how reckless their conduct, no matter how grievous your injury or death, you cannot sue them. And that, again, is, is novel in American history. All these companies now, and I saw it in the Theranos lawsuit, that the judge has banned unvaccinated jurors. And that ultimately, we all know, is now a political implication, because you're getting rid of all the black jurors. The highest, 70% of blacks are unvaccinated. And you're getting rid of any juror who knows how to do critical thinking, right? And they got rid of, they got rid of the rights of association, rights of assembly, by telling us we had to social distance from each other, we can't gather in crowds. Imagine this. They got rid of property rights. It closed every business, a million businesses in this country, 
without due process and without just compensation, in direct violation of the Constitution. They got rid of due process, notice, and comment rulemaking. We know how you pass rules in this country in a democracy. Congress can pass rules. They can vote. They can deliberate as they see fit. But a regulatory agency cannot do that. And an executive cannot do that. Because the courts, and we all were frightened to death, were creating these unelected officials. We have to have some democratic control. So, we, you know, and I've been suing people for 40 years, governments, the EPA, the Interior Department, all the state EPAs, for doing kind of uh, regulatory favors for industry without going through the regulated process. Here's what you have to do when you pass a regulation. You have to propose a rule. You have to publish a proposed rule. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to get everybody to put on masks. You have to publish an environmental impact statement, a regulatory impact statement, an economic impact statement, saying here's the science that we use to support that rule. Here's the justification for it. Here's the people who will be hurt and the financial cost to those people and other costs. Here are the groups, here are the advantages and the benefits of that rule. They all have to be quantified. And then they have to have, they have to give the public a chance to comment, notice and comment. The public then writes in and says, wait a minute, I run a, a wilderness kayaking group that you're going to put out of business and destroy, and there's, there's no science that says that mass will, and on these outside settings, are going to help. Why don't you examine my business? Every business has a right to write in and say, or oh, we can do this, we can do that, we can mitigate the risk. So let's change the rule to accommodate that so it's as narrowly tailored as possible, as the law requires. None of that happened. Then you have a public hearing where Tony Fauci brings in all of his science and all of his scientists that he relied on, and he is not going to be able to find one because we will destroy them in depositions and embarrass and humiliate them. And, and, then, and, and we get to cross-examine them, and then they cross-examine ours, and then the administrative law judge rewrites the rules according to, so that they, they aren't arbitrary and capricious, and then recommends them. And, and if they don't reflect the evidence, we can sue the agency. So there's all these democratic protections. All of that was waived. All of these things were imposed upon us by fiat, with no discussion, no science cited. And, you know, and also, all this track and trace surveillance is violating our right to not have warrantless searches and seizures. You go through the entire Bill of Rights, and with one exception, the Second Amendment, they have all been obliterated. And the weird thing to me is I grew up in a liberal milieu where everybody I knew was saying, the one thing we got to do is protect the Constitution. And to have my side be the ones who are advocating censorship and these kind of controls and the erosion and subversion of our traditional Bill of Rights is really, it is surreal. And you know, we all read Kafka when we were growing up. We all read Orwell. We read all the Robert Heinlein, all of these stories, these parables about the imposition of totalitarianism. None of us, all of us knew what right was from wrong. And it's bizarre to me to see how people have forgotten those things. 
Uh, one of the things, and you know, I'm writing this book now, about to publish this book on Anthony Fauci. And part of my journey in writing that book, it's taken me over a year of really intense research, was it took me kind of on a journey to try to explain how this could have happened in America. And one of the things that I discovered during this process is that what's happening now, this lockstep imposition of totalitarian controls, not just in America, but in every one of the liberal democracies in the world and all of the other countries in the world. You know, China moved into Hong Kong and banned the last democratic newspaper. And everywhere in the world we see these, we see liberal democracy and constitutional rights disappearing. And it all happened at once, as if it was planned. And I don't consider myself a conspiracy theorist, and it's tough to imagine how anybody could have planned this. But then I stumbled on these simulations. And many of you saw the simulation that took place at 201, event 201, in October of 2019. And the people who took part in that simulation were the deputy director of the CIA, April Haynes, who's now the number one person in control of the National Security Agency under Biden. The, you know, Bill Gates, of course, who financed it. People from the social media groups, people from the biggest pharmaceutical companies, Johnson & Johnson, people from global PR, corporate PR agencies, and, and health officials from all over the world, including the Chinese CDC. And what were they simulating? They weren't, they were simulating a pandemic, but they weren't simulating a medical response to that pandemic. They were simulating a militarized response. How do you use that pandemic to, particularly in that event 201, to impose censorship globally? And that's what they were modeling. And if you go look, particularly at episode four, it's all about, and oddly, their preoccupation was, how do we stop people from talking about the fact that this virus may have been lab generated and released? So they're talking about that in October of 2019, and I'm not making this up. You can go to the simulation and see this. How do we shut these people up? George Gao, the head of the Chinese CDC, is saying we need to stop people from talking about that issue. But as I looked at that issue, I found that there was another one called SPARS, where they did the same thing. They're not talking about how do you quarantine the sick and care for them. Instead, they're how do you lock down the healthy, something never been done in history. How do you force people to wear masks? How do you force people to comply with social isolation? How do you bring in the military? How do you silence all dissent? And we're talking about how do you get people to take vitamin D, and how do you build their immune systems and tell them to lose weight, to exercise. 80% of the people who died were overweight, and it was probably a lot more than that because they were counting people who died from lightning strikes and car crashes. How do you develop therapeutic drugs, off-the-shelf therapeutic drugs? Most obvious thing to do, to create a communication system between among the world's 11 million doctors, people who are frontline treating the disease, so that every successful treatment protocol is called in, other people given the opportunity to repeat it, 
and then ways to assess which ones are working, which ones aren't, and to do really rapid placebo-controlled trials in hospitals all over the world, and to create field clinics where you're treating people who are not sick but are infected, so they never have to go to the hospital, and to develop protocols so they never have to leave their homes. So you want to avoid hospitalizations. One, because that's the reason they gave for shutting down society. Uh, two, if you can treat somebody before they leave their home, every time somebody leaves their home who's sick and going to the hospital really sick, that is a super spreader event. That person is spreading the disease to Uber drivers, to doctors, to nurses, to family members, to people on the street. You want to treat them at home. Give them the things that we know kill viral replication. Zinc and anything that enhances zinc, like hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, and a hundred other remedies that we now know dramatically reduce the spread of this disease. And what was our protocol? Our protocol was to do none of that. No treatment until you go to the hospital. And then your treatment are two things that are bound to kill you, ventilators and remdesivir. And Tony Fauci knew that remdesivir would kill you. He knew that because in 2019, he tried to put, use it for Ebola, 2019, he tried to use it for Ebola, and within five days of treatment, it gave lethal side effect to 54% of the people, and the safety monitoring board ordered him to terminate the use of that drug. And he threw a phony, contrived, absolutely fraudulent study that he manipulated and orchestrated of that drug made standard of care, it is homicide. And if you look, how does it kill people? Two ways, three ways. Kidney failure, heart failure, and all organ collapse. And what happened to the people who died in the pandemic? What were they dying of? Kidney failure. All the doctors said, you heard it again and again, we've never seen a virus that attacks the kidneys. Because it wasn't the virus, it was the remdesivir and he denied them deliberately, purposefully, access to the things that we know work because 248 studies show they do, which is ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine, and all the other even monocloidal steroid antibodies, which they know work, they denied to all the people who were in the nursing home where they could have given it to them. But something about this smelled, it, it was suspicious and weird from the beginning, but what I found during the course of my research is that those simulations were not just confined to event 201 into SPARS. I found now over a dozen of them where they did them at least once every two years from beginning in 2000. Most of them were top secret, but they involved hundreds of thousands of people. They were doing these simulations with all the police forces, or many of the big city police forces in our country, with frontline doctors and nurses, with medical officials, with the big corporate officials from the energy industry, from the medical cartels, from the pharmaceutical industry. And they were involving not just the United States, Canada, Mexico, and all the nations of Europe were all participating secretly and drilling this again and again and again. If you look at the techniques that they were using, here's some things they had in common. Virtually every one of those simulations involved representatives from the CIA, and they were written 
these scripts for them were written by people associated with the intelligence agencies. Almost all of them had a well-known American or European leader. The heads of Denmark, Sweden, Sam Nunn, Madeleine Albright, Gary Hart would be at the head of them. And that gave them kind of an imprimatur of gravitas and legitimacy. So all of these frontline workers who are being asked to do weird things were not cure patients, but censor people. They all now have in their head, this is what you do with the pandemic. This is a legitimate way to respond to the pandemic. This is the only way to respond. It's not to make people better. It's not to treat their illnesses. It's not to keep them alive. It's to clamp down totalitarian controls. I wrote a book about my family's 60-year battle with the CIA. It's called American Values. And in researching that, I went out and purchased at great cost. Some of them cost me thousands of dollars. The CIA manuals for manipulating large populations. And they wrote a series of manuals for the techniques that are useful when the intelligence agencies or other foreign policy panjerums want to go into an indigenous society to destroy local businesses, to isolate, to destroy institutional structures, to destroy social structures and social relationships, to obliterate the economy, to create chaos. That will then create enough people in that country who will allow a foreign entity to come in and clamp down centralized control. And almost all of the techniques that are outlined in those manuals are the same techniques that they were practicing in these simulations year after year after year with hundreds of thousands of people. And for example, the, in the CIA manual, you know, the CIA conducted these well-known programs that were called by various names, Operation Artichoke, MKUltra, et cetera, during the late 50s, 60s, and 70s. And the, to, to develop ways of manipulating human beings on an individual basis and on a mass basis. And the, the most potent technique, incidentally, that they learned again and again and again, more potent than physical torture, was isolation. To make, you can make, if you can isolate people, and they did this, is sensory deprivation tanks, but also just locking people in solitary confinement. You can get them to do almost anything you want after a certain period of time. It will drive them mad, because we're social animals, we're social beings. And when you tear those social fabric, it makes people desperate, fearful, and obedient to do anything. Another technique is called Stockholm Syndrome, which is a way of, of putting individuals or large parts of humanity on lockdown for long periods of time, and it induces a kind of mass psychosis that makes them grateful to their captors, makes them empathize with their captors, renders them obedient, believing that obedience is the only path to salvation, absolute obedience, and it obliterates, again, critical thinking. But during this period, the CIA was funding these kind of studies at many college universities, 149 universities, including McGill University in Canada, universities at Berkeley, Harvard, 
Columbia, many, many others all around our country, and even some universities in Central America, Guatemala, et cetera. And they were using prison populations. They were using military people. They were using the subjects from mental institutions, people who were expendable, whose disappearance would not be noticed. And we don't know exactly which of these projects were funded by the CIA, because that was never released in the family jewels disclosures in the 1970s when the Senate did these investigations, and all the material was subsequently destroyed, or most of it. There were these mind control experiments at all the colleges, and one of the ones that almost certainly was funded by the CIA, scholars believe, is a, an experiment called the Milgram experiment. Many of you have heard of a Milgram experiment, and you can look this up as a young psychologist or a social scientist called Stanley Milgram, and he recruited subjects from every walk of life, blacks, whites, the cross-section of America, factory workers, construction workers, university professors, students, etc., housewives, and he would put them, the subject in a room and set them at a table where they would twist a dial, and the dial would supposedly administer electric shocks to a person sitting in the next room who they could not see. They could hear the screams and the pleading and the crying, the agony that they were causing and the begging. And they had a guy who was dressed as a doctor in a white lab coat who was telling them, turn it up higher at different intervals. And many of the people who were turning it up were crying because they didn't want to do it because it clashed with their essential values. It clashed with their conscience. They had to overwrite their conscience. And the doctor would order them to 67%, you can look this up, 67% of the people, of the Americans, who liberal, conservative, et cetera, who were told to do that, turned that dial up to 450 volts, where it was, it said on the dial, potentially fatal. So they were willing to kill somebody if a doctor told them to do it. And that's a really important lesson for today. Because what do they have? They don't have science. They don't have any success story. We, Tony Fauci gave us one of the worst, the worst record arguably in the world of preserving life. We have 5% of the population in the world and 25% of the deaths in the richest country in the world? How's that possible? We have a doctor with the worst track record, a doctor who came in in 1984, or 68, when 6% of the American public had chronic disease, which he's supposed to prevent, allergic and immune diseases, autoimmune diseases, which he's supposed to prevent. And today, under his watch, 54% of our children have those diseases. He is not, he has failed upward his entire career. And, so he's telling us, these fiats, here's what you got to do. He has a schoolboy's allergy to, to citation. He never tells us, here's the science that says this. He just says, this is what the science says. And one day the science says, masks don't work. And two months later, it says, strap on two of them. <laughs> and there's no science cited. Lockdowns work, no science. And then all of my colleagues in the Democratic Party are saying, well, we got to trust the experts. But that, trusting the experts, is a function of religion, not science. <laughs> science, 
Science is about skepticism. It's about questioning. It's about cynicism. It's about show me the evidence. You know, I was on the trial team that tried the Monsanto case. And in the Monsanto case, Monsanto came in with the greatest experts in America, people from the Harvard School of Public Health, et cetera. My wife, who's not an attorney, came and sat in on the trial one day when Monsanto had its experts. At the end of the day, she said, you know, why are you even doing this? This poor company, why are you abusing them? To me. <laughs> and I, I said to her, wait till tomorrow when we cross-examine them. At the end of that day, she said, what a bunch of liars. <laughs> oh, so every case, every law, I've been involved in 500 lawsuits, and every one of them involves the defendants, the corporations come in with their experts, and we come in with ours. And in this case, we had Harvard experts too. And in the end, the jury believed our experts, and they gave us $2.2 billion. And, and so this idea that you trust the experts, it's an oxymoron. There's no such thing, you know, every major medical theory, whether it's heliocentrism or evolution, it started out as a minority position that was ridiculed and gaslighted and laughed at and marginalized, and then it was accepted as fact. And so, you know, we need to respect each other's opinions. We need to respect critical thinking, and we need to be nurturing that, not silencing it. And yet we have these political, listen, when you go to your doctor and he tells you, you got a big problem, and I need to do surgery on you, what do you do? You say, I want a second opinion. And we should be doing the same thing with Tony Fauci. By the way, there are many medical experts out there who are saying the opposite of him. There's Pierre Corey and Peter McCulloch and Peter Bregan and Dr. Harvey Risch from Yale, and I can go on, Ryan Cole, all of these people who actually treat COVID patients and save their lives and are achieving results with those patients that Tony Fauci never dreamed of. That we could have, and they're all saying 80% of the Americans who died did not need to die if you had done these common sense proven protocols. And that's what they're saying. And what is the response? It's not debate. It's not, let me see your evidence. It's, these people are dangerous. They need to be silenced. And that's not America. And, you know, what all of us need to understand is that our country is under attack right now. We have lost the essence. You know, America is, what is our country? Is it just a place where, you know, you, you can come and accumulate a big pile for yourself and whoever dies with the most stuff wins? Or is it, is it the landscapes? Is it the Purple Mountains Majesty? Is it the population, the diversity, et cetera? It's all those things. Uh, more than anything else, it's our Constitution. It's the, the statement of shared values that holds us all together as a people. And we're, we're saying to the rest of the world, we believe something in our country more strongly than anybody else believes, which is that we have to love our liberties more than we fear a disease. What I tell my children, you know, who have sometimes questioned me, I've said to them, because they hear CNN all the time, and they read the New York Times, and they say, well, this is going to kill people. And I say to them, there's a lot worse things than dying. And that may seem cold, but 
there was a generation of Americans in 1776 who said, you know what, it's worth dying to give my children and their children and their children a bundle of rights that will guarantee them liberty forever. And so they laid down their properties, their livelihoods, their lives to provide us with that constitution which we have given away for free to a lying doctor in one year after 200 years of preserving it. You know, we, we need to understand that these are things that we need to be fighting for right now. And that, you know, I've told people for many, many years, people have come to me, famous actors and athletes, and said, you know, I don't want to challenge the vaccine protocol because it's going to destroy my career in doctors. And I've always said to them, well, there's ways to work around it to be part of the battle without sacrificing your livelihoods. But the time has come now where we all have to stand up and we all have to be committing civil disobedience every single day peacefully. And we provide cards that talk about the facts, you know, it's CHD and you can get those, you can hang them out, you can put them in restrooms, you can put them on bulletin boards. You can tell your doctor to his face, show me the evidence. You can be confrontational with people. You can be gentle. You can say what you mean without saying it mean, but you need to start talking back and you need to start talking up. And the more people that do that, you know what? There's a lot of converts coming over to our side. There's no converts going over to their side. And, and the way, you know, the way that they have robbed people of critical thinking is by repeating the same message over and over and over again. And we know that, that you know, there's peer-reviewed evidence that shows that that works. Advertising works. That's why it's a $100 billion industry. If you repeat a message, no matter how ridiculous it is, again and again, people begin to believe it. The way that you shatter that paradigm and that orthodoxy is by repeating the opposite message, the truth, and letting somebody hear that when they're out on their morning walk, when they're walking their baby in the stroller through the grocery store, when they, you know, when they're in the doctor's office listening to the doctor fire you while you talk back to him, and, you know, making trouble everywhere you go, and standing up, and, they, and because people are going to hear you, and then they may not convert at that point, they hear that two or three times, and they're going to say, maybe I ought to look into this. And I, you know what happens when you start looking into this. It's down the rabbit hole, and you're like, holy crap, I can't believe what they did to us. So anyway, I want to, again, you know, thank all of you. We are fighting now the, you know, this is the American Revolution all over again. It started out with a small group of people, and it, you know, it wasn't just a revolution where people gave their lives for this country. In the Civil War, 669,000 people died to preserve our nation, you know, and they gave up their lives with great bravery, and we need to now be willing to give up something to make sacrifices and to win this battle against these elites and these globalists who are trying to take away everything that is meaningful to us, our, you know, our freedoms, our pride in our country. And, you know, I, I can say to you, I'm very proud to be in this room with all of you. 
you know, what the Milgram experiment showed, that 67% of the people in this country, your neighbors, good Americans, will allow their conscience to be overridden, will trample their own values if they're told to do so by a voice of authority, and particularly by a doctor and a medical code. And the people, that 67%, oh, that means 34, 33% didn't do that. And the 33% that didn't are the people sitting in this room. You need to be proud of the fact that you were not in that group that electrocuted somebody. You know, my father told me when I was a little kid, he read the diary of Anne Frank uh, to me and my siblings, and he said, to, to him, he said, you know, people kept saying, at that point in history, a lot of people were talking about the Nazis and what, how the German people, this could have happened to them. And my father said, you know, this is not anything to do with Germans. We all have this disease. They can do this to any of us. And he said, you kids need to ask yourself, if this ever happened in the United States, would you be the people who hit Anne Frank, or would you be the people who turned her in? And you know, you guys have all answered that question. You're the ones who would have hidden Anne Frank, and you need to be proud of that. You kept your values. <laughs> your critical thinking when they were under terrible, ferocious assault. And what I will pledge to you is that I am proud to stand shoulder to shoulder with all of you and with my friend Ron Paul and fight this battle, the second American Revolution. And I can tell you right now, I do not know whether we're going to win or lose. And I can't tell you the only thing I can control is a little piece of real estate inside my own shoes. And I can tell you that whatever happens, that I will go down fighting and that I will die with my boots on. Thank you.